This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. The richest, most powerful place on earth. A fiction podcast. Tuman Bay. On an epic scale. Power is everything. Power gives everything. We have to get away from this place. Tuman Bay is our destiny. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tuman Bay. Be sharp and die for Tuman Listen to all episodes of Tomb and Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class is brought to you by Mr. Robot. On July 13th, Mr. Robot returns to USA Network for its second season. I personally cannot wait. This show is hailed by Rolling Stone as the number one show of 2015, and it was named the best drama by the Golden Globe and Critics' Choice Awards. Mr. Robot follows a cybersecurity engineer who is recruited by the mysterious leader of an underground group determined to bring down the world's largest corporation. And then when their hacking is a success, the consequences are far greater than they imagined. I cannot say enough about how much I love this show. It stars Rami Malek and Christian Slater. And Mr. Robot returns Wednesday, July 13th at 10, 9 central, only on USA Network. Hey, I'm Chuck. And I'm Josh. And we're the host of Stuff You Should Know, the podcast. That's right. And if you're into understanding cool and unusual and seemingly ordinary and even boring things that are made interesting, you should check us out. Please and thank you. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, anywhere you get podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. And welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And today we are going to touch on a little bit of Persian history, uh, specifically an empire that occupied a massive swath of territory. And it is uh, the Achaemenid Empire. You'll sometimes also hear it called the Achaemenid Empire. It is also sometimes called the Achaemenid Persian Empire. Sometimes the words Persian and Achaemenid are transposed. But it's also discussed in terms of being ancient Iran. But in terms of geography, it was much, much larger than modern-day Iran is. So if you overlaid a map of the Achaemenid Empire at its peak over a modern map, it would cover Iran and to its east, Pakistan, Afghanistan, parts of Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan. And to the west of modern-day Iran, uh, the empire encompassed uh, Iraq, Syria, Turkey, Jordan, Greece, parts of Egypt, Saudi Arabia. It just went on and on and on, including uh, Macedonia and Albania. It was, as we will discuss, the largest empire the world had ever seen in recorded history at that point. And any time we talk about a chunk of one area's history, it can also be a little awkward to define the exact beginning and end of the segment, because what comes before it and what comes after the period that you're discussing is all related to the period of time itself. So in this instance, we're going to talk 
primarily about the Achaemenid Empire from its founding to the height of its power, but we're also going to feather out a bit on either side of that for context. So first, we're going to start talking about the figure for whom the empire was named, although that is not the person who established it. Uh, he came quite some time before the empire was actually founded. Achaemenes was the founder, at least in name, of the Persian royal house. But there's a possibility that, in fact, he was a mythical figure who was then adopted into the royal lineage to give it a divine power. In Plato's writing, Achaemenes was Zeus's grandson. And in the writings of Aelianus, he was the son of an eagle. The name Achaemenes, or Achaemenes, depending on how you're going to go with that, is derived from the old Persian words meaning friend and thinking power. But even though we lack historical evidence of the actual existence of Achaemenes, tracing back the historical line of Persia, if he had been a real person, he would have lived roughly at the end of the 8th century BCE into the first part of the 7th century BCE. But even before that, the clansmen of the line that's linked to Achaemenes may have been leaders over the Persian tribes who lived in the area of modern-day northern Iran as far back as the 9th century BCE. Eventually, though, the Persians, possibly under Achaemenes or just as likely under another leader, migrated south into the Zagros region. And the Zagros Mountains, for a reference point, run along the western border of modern-day Iran. And from there, the kingdom was enlarged over time. But the actual Achaemenid Empire wasn't founded until the 6th century BCE, so 300 years after that 9th century date we mentioned earlier. To get to that point, we have to jump in time to uh, Cyrus II, son of Cambyses. Cyrus I was his grandfather, just in case you were wondering. Yeah, anytime we jump into a, a numbering system and we kind of come in like on a two or three, I feel like we should give a little context of who maybe the first one was. Uh, but Cyrus II was a Persian prince who ascended to the throne of King of Anshan when his father died in 559 BCE. Anshan was a city that was conquered by Cyrus II's relatives, and they assumed the name of the city as part of the royal title. Beginning in 552 BCE, Cyrus II led a coalition of Persian tribes with the intent to make a move for power and no longer be dominated by the Median dynasty. In 550 BCE, Cyrus II, a.k.a. Cyrus the Great of Persia, defeated King Astyagus of Medea. The victory was aided in part by a number of soldiers turning on their king and siding with Cyrus. Uh, Astyagus, who's actually recorded as Cyrus II's grandfather on his mother's side, had ruled most of the of, of what is now Iran and Turkey. And Cyrus II had, with his federation of tribes, come up from the south to take all of this land. We don't have any real record of his lineage, but Cyrus II claimed royal descent from uh, Achaemenes as he established this new kingdom. Maybe. Right. There is some cloudiness, actually, over whether Cyrus II actually did claim this relation. In his inscription from Pasargadi, Cyrus II claims himself to be an Achaemenid. But we don't know, however, if there was another man, Darius I, we'll talk about him in a moment, who was actually responsible for those writings rather than Cyrus II himself. In any case, uh, Cyrus II's victory in this situation really marks the beginning of the Achaemenid Empire. 
Cyrus declared himself Shah of Persia, built a capital on the site of his victory, and started figuring out what he wanted to do with the vastly diverse assortment of lands and peoples that he now governed. This is also at a point where a previous fracture in the Persian kingdom, which was formed when a prior king had split the land that he controlled between two sons when he died, was basically healed. That's a whole separate story, really. These two separate entities, though, were reunited in the formation of the Achaemenid Empire. And we're going to talk more about Cyrus II as a ruler in just a moment because he was quite unique. But first, we're going to pause for a word from one of our fantastic sponsors. So I think you and I both have binge-watched lots of stuff. We have lots of ways to binge-watch things now. I don't know what you're talking about, says the person that went to bed at four in the morning because she was busy watching a lot of television. (laughs) (laughs) Really, though, like that, we have a whole lot of options in terms of binge watching from, you know, random TV shows we want to catch up on, some more educational things. There are just so many service for, services for that. Now there is texture also, so you can be binge reading in addition to your binge watching. Texture has really completely reimagined magazines, giving you all of the articles and the stories that you really want. They're all in one place. Plus, there are interactive features, videos, and recommendations just for you. It's all in the palm of your hand, all on your device right there. So, so similarly to how it's easy to fall down a binge TV hole, you can fall down a binge magazine hole. Sign up right now at texture.com slash history and gain unlimited insider access to all of the content from the world's best publications. And the best part is Texture is offering our listeners a free trial right now when you go to texture.com slash history. You'll get immediate entry into all of the top magazines, including back issues and bonus video content. So you can start binge reading for free right now when you go to texture.com slash history. Uh, you know, for our listeners, there are some things that you all might be particularly interested in. We talk so much about food and delicious things, and there are uh, uh, you can get stuff from Bon Appetit and stuff from Eating Well. Texture has Runner's World for all of you running folks all there out there, and then Smithsonian for the more history, science, uh, more educational type of things. So one more time, that is. Uh, a free trial for our listeners for free right now when you go to texture.com slash history. And now we'll get back to our story. So before the break, we spoke about how Cyrus II founding the Achaemenid Empire was a reunification in some ways. But make no mistake, it was not exactly a rosy picture. Some of the peoples of this newly formed empire were not exactly enthused to be ruled by this self-installed Persian monarch. Uh, still, Cyrus II quickly managed to expand the lands he ruled significantly and continuously. And this is considered a really extremely significant moment in world history. For one, it represented the largest empire that the world had ever seen at this point. And for another, it united all of the existing civilized states of the ancient Near East as one kingdom. 
And one of the strategies that was employed by Cyrus II, at least according to legend, was to take advantage of the knowledge of the men he had conquered. So while normally it would be pretty standard to kill off everyone who came before you, he actually spared the leaders that he had bested in battle so that he might ask their advice on how best to govern their people. What would one day be known as Asia Minor and then eventually Turkey was conquered by Cyrus II when it was the Lydian kingdom of Croesus, and that was in 547 BCE. At this point, uh, Cyrus advanced on the Lydian army as they were retreating for the winter. They had been battling in the fall, but it had not come to any kind of conclusive outcome. And then King Croesus pulled his troops back. He thought everyone was going to stop There's hostilities until spring, basically take a break for the wintertime. But Cyrus II took advantage of the situation instead. After a two-week siege, the Achaemenid Empire emerged victorious and absorbed the Lydians' lands, taking over Lydia. With this, Cyrus II gained power over the major commerce hub in uh, all of the Middle East at that point. And Cyrus II also added uh, the Babylon and Neo-Babylonian Empire to the Achaemenid Empire in 539 BCE. Once the Lydian kingdom had been dominated, Cyrus went after its Babylonian ally. But he did not march on these lands and take military action. Instead, he enlisted propaganda, spreading the word that Babylonian culture would be safer in his hands, the hands of Cyrus II, who would respect it, than under the rule of their king, Nabonidus. The smear campaign against Nabonidus worked. People rose up against their king, and then after he had been deposed, Babylonia welcomed Cyrus II, who was able to just walk into the city and take over. In the 19th century, a clay cylinder, which is now called the Cyrus Cylinder, and it's kept in the British Museum, was found beneath the foundations of Babylon's city wall, believed to have been placed there uh, very purposefully. It is another propaganda element designed to characterize Cyrus II's entry into Babylon as completely benevolent. The cylinder reads, quote, When I entered Babylon as a friend and when I established the seat of the government in the palace of the ruler under jubilation and rejoicing, Marduk, the great lord, uh, induced the magnanimous inhabitants of Babylon to love me. And I was daily endeavoring to worship him. My numerous troops walked around Babylon in peace. I did not allow anybody to terrorize any place of the country of Sumer and Akkad. I strove for peace in Babylon and in all his other sacred cities. As indicated in the Cyrus Cylinder, Cyrus II restored temples in Babylon. He reinstated religious rites that had gone neglected under the Babylonian king's reign. And he released political prisoners. And he proclaimed that he was the new king of the land. He set up a system in which the peoples of his empire could practice whatever religion and cultural traditions they desired in exchange for tribute. This is basically like a tax system that grants those paying the taxes the right to live their lives as they please. The wording of his cylinder just cracks me up a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure that is a slightly embellished translation on somebody's part. Yeah, it just sounds like I was the greatest and most magnanimous, and I really, I didn't kill anybody at all. You guys, I'm awesome and super gentle. <laughs> So, for the record, we don't know what religion Cyrus followed, if any. Uh, We should also point out that 
this approach to governance and leadership was really a steep departure from what had gone before in most civilizations. The idea of conquering a place or a group of people and then bending them all to the conqueror's ways has played out numerous times in history before this point and in fiction for that matter. And in for that matter, lots and lots more times since then, which is one of the reasons that this, the language on the cylinder uh, being so like, I am the most gentle ever. <laughs> Anyway, uh, this concept of just letting people live their lives their way after their country had been conquered and absorbed was really groundbreaking. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Cyrus the Great is mentioned in the Old Testament Bible as a patron of the Jews, and that's due to his policies and actions during this time. Exiled and imprisoned Jews living in Babylon were released and told to go rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, and they were given financial assistance at Cyrus II's decree. Cyrus II is believed to have been killed in battle in 529 BCE by the queen of an Iranian tribe when he and his troops tried to expand their holdings farther into the west, according to the writings of Herodotus. And he was laid to rest in a tomb in Pisargeti. As we mentioned just a moment ago, we don't know what his religious beliefs were. And while some historians have come to the conclusion that the kings of the Achaemenid Empire were Zoroastrians, a tomb burial is in direct conflict with that idea. The practicing Zoroastrians who came after Cyrus II practiced something uh, closer to a sky burial, which you may have heard of, uh, leaving bodies on stone structures, nicknamed Towers of Silence, to decompose and be consumed by animals. Uh, and there's been speculation that perhaps there were at one point variations of the religion that would accommodate the idea of Cyrus II being buried in a tomb. But that's still all a very big question mark at this point. Cyrus II's son, Cambyses II, took the throne in 529 BCE when Cyrus died and continued his father's work. Under his rule, the Achaemenid Empire expanded to contain Egypt, Nubia, and the land that makes up modern-day Libya. But Cambyses II was not like his father at all when it came to how he ruled things, and that proved to be a problem. Yeah, whereas Cyrus II had tried to unite his people by working with them and accepting their differences, Cambyses was considered a severe king. He was not very good at compromise. Uh, he certainly did not exhibit that ability to work with people the way his father had excelled at it. Cambyses II ruled for only seven years, and the end of his life included a pretty big amount of drama. Well, Cambyses was away from home in 522 BCE. He received news that a revolt had broken out. And the weird part was that the revolt was being led by Cambyses' brother, Bardia. This was weird, uh, not because it would have been traitorous, traitorous. Like, the, obviously, if your brother is rising up against you, he is a traitor. But because Cambyses... The second had actually killed his brother in secret several years before that. Yeah, so this revolt, according to the story, which I should say is told with some variations in a number of different sources, was actually led by a holy man, uh, a magi, who was pretending to be the deceased brother. 
taxes, military conscription, religious intolerance, and a serious debt for the kingdom for all of that military-led expansion, including some of the stuff that Cyrus II had done. It wasn't all Cambyses II that was racking up all of this debt. Uh, but all of that combined had really laid the groundwork for this holy man, Gaumata, to incite a revolution among the people. Cambyses II never really engaged with this whole revolt situation. He seems to have died suddenly, possibly en route to his capital. There's some speculation that he actually committed suicide rather than face what awaited him when he got there. In the power vacuum that was left in the king's wake once he had died, one of his generals named Darius, who he was also distantly related to, assumed the role of defender of the Achaemenid throne. Darius killed Gaumata, the leader of this revolution, within a few months of the uprising, and he spent the next year suppressing additional revolts and uprisings through military action. Allegedly, there were 19 different battles with potential revolts that he put down rather efficiently. One of the reasons that we use the word allegedly there, though, is because the story of Darius and his victory over this rebellion is known to us mostly through a narrative rock carving, which Darius himself commissioned. The writings that also tell tell the tale, including the work of Herodotus, all come later and were probably influenced by this official carved rock version of the story. So rather than the title of king being passed down from father to firstborn son, Darius, in killing the leader of the uprising against Cambyses II, believed himself to have restored the kingdom to the house of the Achaemenid family. And Darius was related to the preceding king, but it was pretty distantly. He certainly would not have been the next in line for the throne. There's also a possibility that he concocted this whole story of the holy man and the whole thing made up by Darius as part of a much larger con to gain power. In the writings of Herodotus, uh, Cyrus II had been suspicious of Darius during his reign before his death, believing that the young man was plotting to overthrow him. Yeah, so that would definitely be a long con if he was doing it. If it had been more than seven years in the making since uh, Cyrus II died, seven years before Darius came to power. Uh, but just the same, Darius, supported by the Persian nobles who worked with him to murder Gaumata and end that uprising, uh, he still came into power with that support. And as we mentioned just a moment ago, he defended against a, a series of uprisings in his first year as ruler, cementing his position a little bit more with each of those victories. So whether Darius came to the throne through scheming or not, what's actually kind of fascinating is that he proved to be an important and very adept leader. Although Cyrus II and Cambyses II made massive strides in establishing and expanding the empire, it's really Darius I who's considered to be the greatest of the Achaemenid rulers. Darius further augmented the empire's holdings, and most importantly, he moved it into the Indus Valley. But in his 35-year reign, he also advanced the empire in other ways as well. And we're going to talk about how he really earned this reputation as a great ruler. But first, we're going to pause for another quick break and talk about one of our sponsors. Lots of us have smartphones. Lots of us have other smart devices. Some of us even have smart homes. But technology can make everything smart, but it can't make you remember where you put your stuff. Nope. (laughs) This is a very real struggle for me every day of my life. 
there's often the uh, the last minute tantrum as we're trying to rush out the door of where did I put my and insert any word here keys wallet glasses glitter anything that I might carry with me I can't find it because I am a fool and I'm forgetful when I put things down. However, Tracker can save me from myself and make losing things a thing of the past. So this is like a coin-sized device, and it will help you locate those misplaced keys and wallets and bags and your laptop, anything that you need to carry with you that you tend to forget in seconds. You just pair the Tracker to your smartphone, you attach it to anything, and you can find its precise location with the tap of a button. It is that easy. It's so super simple. So if you lose your phone, you can press the button on Tracker, and your phone will ring even if you have it on silent. With more than 1.5 million devices, Tracker has the largest crowd GPS network in the world, so your lost item shows up on a map even if it is miles away. Maybe you left your keys in a store. I don't know what that's like. <laughs> uh, my bad one is the fabric store where I'll go in and start touching things and put down what I was holding in my hand. My local fa- my local fabric store has collected a lot of my personal goods over the <laughs> Years and held them for me at customer service. Now they won't have to. I can run in and on the slide just find my keys by myself. So you will never lose anything again with Tracker. Listeners to our show get a special discount of 30% off their entire order. Go to thetracker.com. So you have to have the T-H-E at the beginning, thetracker.com, and enter the promo code, which is history. The hardest thing you will ever have to find is their website. So that is thetracker.com. Go there right now. Enter promo code history for 30% off your entire order. Again, that is thetracker.com, promo code history. Darius I made the government of the Achaemenid Empire centralized and compact and efficient. He managed to develop a means of governing people from all of the diverse lands that had been conquered in the empire's expansion and to once again unify the rule of peoples with different customs, languages, and religions under one governmental umbrella. As you recall, Cyrus II was pretty good at that. Cambyses less so. Uh, so under the reign of Darius, art and culture actually flourished and really ambitious public works and building projects were undertaken. He divided the land into 20 provinces or satrapies, and each of these is governed by a satrap with a military commander in each one to keep, t- uh, keep tabs on things and prevent any of the satraps from getting ideas about amassing additional power. He also collected tributes, in other words, taxes from each of them, which uh, in this case was used to fund a navy, public irrigation systems, roads, and a canal to connect the Red Sea to the Nile. He also united all of these financially by creating one unified currency for all of them. And like Cyrus II had done before him, Darius allowed the people of the empire to worship whatever religion they wished. Darius, uh, we should point out, was certainly not modest about himself or his position. He built a mammoth palace at what would come to be known as Persepolis, although this was not the permanent capital of the empire. And he adopted the title Shahan Shah, which is King of Kings, over the previously used title of Shah. Like, he was super king. One thing that Darius I never managed was the conquering of Grecian revolts. In 492 BCE, while sailing to attack the Grecians, his entire flotilla was demolished in a storm at sea. 
He made another run at Greece in 490 BCE, but his army was defeated at Marathon by the Athenian army. Not long after, Darius, who was weakened by another uprising in Egypt, died, and that was in 486 BCE. And unfortunately, that burgeoning culture that he had really fostered and caused to grow in his 35 years of leadership was not to last. Uh, so when Darius I's son, Xerxes, came to power, it signaled in many ways the beginning of the end for the Achaemenid Empire. Xerxes was rather smug, and he was unable to cooperate with the various different peoples of the empire. His relationship with the people that he governed uh, was generally fraught, as evidenced by his punishment of Babylon for an uprising that was catalyzed by a tax increase. Quick to act, even at a cost to his own kingdom, Xerxes had the rioters quieted by completely destroying Babylon himself. Rebellions became commonplace, and they slowly chipped away at the domain that had been established with Cyrus II's rule. While he mounted military actions, they weren't generally successful. One uh, against Greece in 480 BCE went so poorly that after that point, he seemed to mostly just spend his time hiding away in his palace. Yeah, there's a whole secondary thing we could do about Xerxes and palace intrigues at this point. Uh, it's a little daytime drama. It's... <laughs> Uh, but over the course of the next two centuries, the Achaemenid Empire just continued to slowly crumble. The satraps slowly made power grabs to extend their influence and their riches. Artaxerxes succeeded his father Xerxes in 465 BCE, and he was followed by Darius II in 423 BCE, and then Artaxerxes II through the fourth came after that. And while all of these rulers had their own intrigues and battles, uh, and you know, their own stories that we could tell, they still are not as as sort of big and important and interesting because none of them advanced the Achaemenid Empire in the way that Cyrus II and Darius I did. Wars continued to rage on with Greece and Egypt. And then finally, in 334 BCE, Alexander the Great brought his armies up against the once mighty Persian throne under Darius III. While Alexander had to fight a long series of battles along the way, proof that even in a weakened state, the Achaemenid Empire was still pretty formidable, he was ultimately victorious, and Darius III was murdered by one of his own generals. Alexander took command of the Persian Empire, which really put an end to the Achaemenid Empire. Yeah, that was a wrap on it. It's so, um, you know, it's one of those things where... It was the apex of of all things. It was the biggest government in some under some rulers. It was a really pretty spectacular government in terms of of having a vastly diverse population that was able to sort of uh, just live as it would. All of the peoples being able to do what they wanted in terms of their culture and their religion. And then it all fell apart, which is sort of sad. But that is how history works. Do you also have listener mail? I do, and it's really pretty. Uh, <laughs> this listener mail is a postcard from our listener, Amy, and it is uh, an absolutely gorgeous postcard with four ladies in beautiful Rococo gowns on it. And she says, Dear Holly and Tracy, I am a big fan of Stuff You Missed in History Class and felt compelled to send you a postcard from my recent European vacation. 
As my boyfriend and I were taking a train from Nice in the south of France to Paris, your episode on Elizabeth Louise Vigée Lebrun came on my playlist. How fortuitous. I was able to listen to the fascinating story of Lebrun and her talent while watching the beautiful French landscape that she loved so much rush before my eyes. The next day, we took in the wonderful art of both Elizabeth and her father at the Palace of Versailles. It meant a lot to look at their art and understand the context of their work and the triumphs and tragedies they had experienced. I'm sending this card as a thank you for hours of entertainment on the New York City subway because I know and because I know of Holly's enjoyment of costume and fashion. All the best. It's so pretty. Thank you so much, Amy. I love it. And I'm going to confess a lot of times I keep our postcards here so Tracy can enjoy them when she comes to the office, but I'm probably going to steal this one and use it as a personal bookmark. <laughs> because I'm selfish that way. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you can email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us at facebook.com slash history on Twitter at history at pinterest.com slash history at mistinhistory.tumblr.com, and on Instagram at history. If you would like to uh, do a little research on the area we talked about today, you could go to our parent site, HowStuffWorks, type in the word Mesopotamia in the search bar, and you will get an article called Why is Mesopotamia Called the Cradle of Civilization? Uh, you can also visit us at mistinhistory.com, and you'll find all of our episodes going back to when the podcast first existed in very short form with other hosts and every episode since then, as well as show notes on every episode that Tracy and I have appeared on. Uh, and the occasional other fun goodie and blog post. We encourage you, come and visit us at mistinhistory.com and at our parent site, howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. The richest, most powerful place on earth. A fiction podcast. Tuman Bay. On an epic scale. Power is everything. Power gives everything. We have to get away from this place. Tuman Bay is our destiny. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tuman Bay. Be sharp and die for Tuman Bay! Listen to all episodes of Tuman Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Laura Wasser, host of the All's Fair podcast on iHeartRadio. I'm a family law attorney, which is really a euphemism for a divorce attorney, and I've been practicing for over 20 years. I've learned some very interesting things along the way, and I can tell you that when dealing with matters of the heart, rules seldom apply. With advice and anecdotes from many of my friends, some of whom may be celebrities, as well as the best legal, financial, and mental health professionals in the country, our goal is to educate, enlighten, empower, and entertain you on the way to a better understanding of how relationships work. iHeartRadio is number one for podcasts, but don't take our word for it. Find All's Fair with Laura Wasser on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.